Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We have officially entered Sosa McGuire ESPN 30 for 30 documentary week. Welcome in to the Windy City Podcast. 1998 was the first year that I ever got to cover baseball. I had a season credential to the Chicago Cubs, courtesy of the Naked Truth About Sports, which is a great sports show. Now, I say this to only say that I was around that team a ton in 98. And Sammy, honestly, was not at least covering the team that stood out because Sosa was not exactly around in the clubhouse. And whereas a lot of those guys spent a lot of time right in front of their lockers, Mark Grace, Matt Karchner, Rod Beck, Jeff Blauser. These guys, after the game, they would fill up their huge 20-ounce 7-Eleven style foam cups and just load up the beers, smoke at their locker, and you could just tell once the media was let out of there, the party was just going to continue on for a while. It was old-school baseball. That's what the 98 Cubs were. And then you had this Sammy guy who was having the time of his life hitting 20 homers in the month of June, saying he was taking Flintstone vitamins. I was believing him. And then the Cardinals would come in, and Mark McGuire would hit home runs 7,000 feet in batting practice. Absolute moonshots. And you'd go to his locker, and he was not a nice guy, didn't want to talk to the media, but he had all his pills and whatever else just laying in the locker on the top shelf for all to see. Wasn't hiding it. Different time in baseball back in 1998. Jeff Pentland is on the show today. He was the Cubs hitting coach. Lengthy Cubs conversation with Pent today. And then my guy Ethan Blumenthal is going to fail a Cubs test at the back end of the podcast today. All right. As we move into our guy, Jeff Pentland. Pent was a guy who... I really could always go to it as far as back in the day if I needed a guest on a radio show that I was producing for. Jeff Penland, hey, will you come on with Steve Rosenblum and Dave Baum on a Saturday morning on the score? Yes, I will, Mark. No problem. Jim Riggleman was great with that, too. But Pent was a good dude. I wanted to have him on more than perhaps others did because I just liked the guy and I was and I thought he gave some interesting answers. He's going to talk at length about Sosa and McGuire and the 98 Cubs team. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And then Ethan will embarrass himself on the back end. Good to have my guy Ethan Blumenthal on as well, as he did gain a major fan, which I'll explain coming up here. But we move on to our conversation with the Cubs hitting coach in 98, Jeff Pentland. 
the hitting coach for the Chicago Cubs in the late 90s, beloved uh, by the Chicago Cubs. Mark Grace, quote, as I'm going back through the papers here, Jeff Pentland, quote, best hitting coach I've ever had. Jim Riggleman, the players believe in him, gravitate toward him. Jeff, uh, great to hear you today. I appreciate you being on. No, it's uh, it was a great place. I loved it there. Uh, you know, we didn't do as well as we would have wanted to, but uh, it was a lot of fun. So let, let's go back and talk about the uh, the evolution, if you will, of Sammy Sosa. Sosa jumps from 36 to 66 homers in 98. I didn't know that anything was going on that was a little bit funny. Did you? Well, I mean, the scuttlebutt, I mean, it's not like I was, uh, you know, blind to everything. Uh, obviously, at that particular time, uh, I think it was just, if we're talking about steroids, you know, I yeah. mean, the players had had no resolve as far as who could and who couldn't because uh, both sides, the union and the owners, kind of, uh, I don't know, they kind of, Looked the other way, and when that was concerned, there was no testing. Right. Sammy hit 66 homers in 98, 63 in 99, and he hit 64 in 2001. He didn't lead the league in homers in any of those seasons, (laughs) which is, uh, to me, that's kind of... He led the league when he hit 50 homers. Yeah, right. He led the league with 50 in 2000, but it's just kind of amazing. It was weird because Barry sat out the last day. And I think he had 49. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't remember that yeah, part. It was, a, it was a different game. I mean, uh, you can blame it on anything you want, but, you know, the ball was better. The parks were, were more conducive to hitting. You know, all the improvements were for the hitter at the time. And, you know, obviously uh, a, a lot of, you know, when I got interviewed by, uh, the Mitchell report, I think I was in there an extra hour because I had Bonds and Sosa and Sheffield and all these supposed guys. That, But I can tell you that younger ages, there's no doubt that they were not on steroids. That- I never got involved in it. I was a hitting coach. But uh, at, during the, the late 90s, you know, players – players there was no recourse it was basically legal to the player what made sammy so good in your mind jeff you know i'm going back i'm reading these articles and it says that you would you would spend uh and correct me if i'm wrong but it says that you would spend like five to 15 minutes flipping balls to him before every game so he could fine-tune his swing is that right do you remember that oh yeah i remember everything happened with him because uh I was hired in 97 late, and uh, at the time, Billy Williams was, uh, and Tony Muser were the hitting coaches, and uh, Sammy didn't like me at all. He didn't want nothing to do with me, but, you know, I stuck to him like glue, and at the end of the year, we kind of had a, a, a meeting of the minds, and he said, uh, yeah, I'll do what you want me to do, and I sent him some tapes of he was using uh, a unusual, well, in those days it was normal, a little bit of a tap step where you 
tap back with your front foot, then you tap forward, more of a, a rhythm and timing device. And his was uh, not right. And I, I sent him some video of the best tappers in the game, like uh, Chipper Jones and uh, Williams from the Yankees. And I actually sent him Mark Grace. Who, who did it very well. And that was the premise we worked off of for the following spring training. I'll say one thing about Sammy. Uh, he his, his work ethic was off the charts. I mean, I would flip to him sometimes 30 and 40 minutes in the cages until we got it right. So basically what I wanted him to do was slow his feet down, start earlier, make sure his feet are are on the ground well before the pitch gets to the plate. Sammy had, Sammy had tremendous ability, but his timing mechanisms were never, never that great. And he held his hands really, really high and – I wanted to stay more grounded. In other words, you have to use the earth to create power. You can't be coming up off the earth or out of your legs, however you want to say it. Uh, You have to be going into the ground in order to use your weight more as, as for power. You know, your legs basically come out of your lower half, so your power comes out of your legs. So when you're really... When you have a fast rhythm or fast and late uh, stride, you're not going to pick the ball up very well. Uh, you're not going to be able to get into your into your uh, legs, especially the back hip. And we worked on that, worked on it, worked on it. And uh, he actually took the drill that we were doing and put it into his game, where he actually stepped I'd have him step back so early that he almost had a, a, a big pause before he went forward. And he, he, lo- he loved it. And we, you know, we tweaked some other things, but essentially uh, I didn't really change his swing much at all. It was just more of learning how to create a, a base for power and to be on time so he could recognize pitches earlier. And the, and the thing that I was most proud of him was, yeah, he hit all those home runs, but I think the worst he ever hit for me in the five years I had him, I think his batting average, the least he hit, was 290. Hit 328 once. Yeah, he hit uh, – I was I was looking at it. Like, in, in 98, when he hit – 320-something. At 98, he hit 30-something. 308. 288. And he was MVP of the league. Yep. He had like 130 runs scored, 160 RBI, somewhere in that area. He, it's just, it's incredible, really. He hit 308, 66 homers. McGuire had 70, so it didn't lead the league, but he led the league in RBIs, 158, led the league in total bases, 416. The next year, he hits 288 with 63 homers, um, 141 RBIs. Then he hits that. That's the three. He hits three twenty with fifty bombs, and then he hits three twenty eight with six. Two hundred one was his best year, but Bonds hit seventy. Yeah, 
73, I think. I mean, that's crazy. He hit 328 with 64 homers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I was the most proud of him for his ability to hit because, uh, you know, earlier in his career, you know, they paid him some money, but sometimes he didn't show up when it, when it counted the most. And I said, if you want respect from your teammates, you're going to have to do a better job of hitting uh, with runners on and when the when the game is close. So we, uh, right before the season, we we uh, made made up ten goals. You know, my goals were like a hundred walks, uh, hit three hundred, score a hundred runs, you know, lead the league in RBIs you know, more statistical stuff. And he he came up with the last one, and that was, I want to be MVP of the league. And the other thing he did in June, I think he broke the record for home runs in a month. Yeah, he had 20 of them. What, he was easy to work with, uh, you know, because he really wanted to be good. He was quiet. He was humble. And there were times where we went at it pretty good. I would take it behind the stands, and we go after it. And he treated me with a great deal of respect. So, you know, we we kind of matched. So you would get in screaming matches with him? Oh, you know, I I I guess I guess you can call us old school, but. When I thought a player had ability and was not playing to it, I let them know. Players had taken swings at me before. Sometimes you get them mad on purpose. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Tell me a story of somebody swinging at you. Well, I don't know if that's apropos because that's probably not the way to be a hitting coach. But uh, <laughs> uh, most want- of it was in the minor leagues when I was uh you know, I got out of college coaching uh, when when they dropped our scholarship. I was at a- Arizona State. That's where I had Barry. And I had Barry for two years at ASU. And he, he was so dominant, there was no reason to even say anything to him. But um, anyway, when they dropped the scholarships, I went back into professional baseball and I started with the Marlins when they were an expansion club. And luckily, I moved up the ladder fairly quick. Because I don't think they were really allowed to hire outside uh, other ball clubs. They had to use a different avenue. Because they were only allowed uh, a certain number of front office coaches from other organizations. I missed. So I got lucky. I showed up at the right time. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I missed that Barry connection. I'm thinking to myself, where did you have Barry? And I didn't realize that. Uh, I forgot that he had played at Arizona State. That's crazy. That's no, a- Barry was great. I mean, you know, uh, he he was so intimidating as a college player. You know, his swing really wasn't the swing you saw later on. Uh, he made some serious adjustments in professional baseball. Barry was the smartest guy I ever had and probably had the best instincts I ever had. He was fun to be around. The only issue was he was so much better than the competition. You know, he he didn't always show up in the midweek games when we were playing some of the smaller schools, so his numbers 
could have been way better than they were. It's interesting, Jeff, because, I mean, I was a 25-year-old kid in 98, and I would, you know, try to – I'd ask you to come on radio shows and whatever else, and you were always so easygoing, mellow guy, and yet there's this other side of you where you're challenging guys. So that's a nice dichotomy right there, which I never quite understood until now. <laughs> well, it, I, you know, I, I don't think I was confrontational, but – I would I would uh, upset people, and you know one of the things I told Sammy to motivate him was, your numbers against Atlanta are absolutely horrible. If you go back and look at those numbers, I'm not going to quote them over the phone because I know what they are. But I said the All Star game goes through Atlanta because they win every year. And what do you think Bobby Cox thinks of you as a player when when you're hitting below a hundred against, you know, their big their big guys. In fact, Riggleman wasn't getting worried. We went in Atlanta, and I had since spring training had built this thing up to a mountaintop that, you know, the challenge is Atlanta, and to prove yourself as a, you know, above average major leaguer or, or superstar. You got to hit Smoltz, Gladman, and Maddox. And in '98, he did. He killed them. And every time he hit a home run, he'd look at Bobby Cox. <laughs> well, I, but, I, you know, he. Yeah. I think he'd only made one other All Star. The other thing he hadn't done that year, he was ten years in when I coached him, and I asked him, "How many Grand Slam homers do you have?" He says, I don't have one. I told him, you know, I want you to take the first pitch anytime there's bases loaded because you you are a guy that tends to swing out of the strike zone a lot and you get all amped up with the bases loaded, so you'll you'll swing at the rosin bag. So he started taking the first pitch, they throw it in the dirt, he wouldn't swing it, next thing he'd get ahead. I think he had four grand slam homers that year. This speaks to a guy who wants to be great, took the feedback. He wanted to be the best, no question in my mind. Yeah, I'm looking at his stats in, in 98 against the Braves. He had 28 at-bats, or 26 at-bats, 28 plate appearances. He had eight hits, three homers, hit 308, 357 on base, knocked in five. Only yeah, because you look at the numbers before that. Yeah. They were ridiculously low. Yeah. Because I remember the only time as a coach I ever beat Maddox, I think, was that year. I think Kerry Wood threw a two-hitter, and Grace and Sammy took him deep. Guy should never have been an Atlanta Brave, but that's a story for another time. When you compare Sammy to Barry, it seems like you're of the opinion that you know Sammy was great, but Barry was better. No, Sammy had – just as much talent as Barry. In fact, I played against Barry's dad, and, and I don't know if I've ever played against anybody more talented than Bobby Bonds. To me, Bobby was ta- more talented than Barry. Sammy was a product of, of the Dominican. So you basically had to hit off the island. So, you know, you know so he didn't have a, uh, a viable approach or, or um, 
you know, the, the analyst, you know, I, I was a huge video guy, so I would spend four to six hours a day on the video. And back when Sammy played, the video was horrible. You know, now you can see the hairs on players' arms. The preparation, the game preparation wasn't, wasn't quite as good as it was as you got better. So, you know, the players created their own game plan. I don't know if this is making sense to you or not. Sure. You know, when I was, like an example, when we faced, uh, who's the Cy Young winner from the Mets? DeGrom. DeGrom. Yeah. So we're facing DeGrom and I'm with the Yankees. And I bet you me and the players spent almost an hour going over how to attack DeGrom. And I think we hit five homers in five innings. But, you know, that's how scientific it, it, you know, it has become. But he was a rookie then, so he had some weaknesses. I don't know if he has (laughs) any anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's, It's interesting that you were a video guy. Seemingly, would you call yourself ahead of the curve on that? Oh yeah, I mean my uh, master's degree is in biomechanics. Not not that I ever used it. You know, I never used the terminology with players, but certainly I used it to not only break down uh, hitters but pitchers. Probably our main job. You know, once you get through spring training, you know your hitters upside down and backwards. So when they get into slumps, I think that's probably your number one job. As a hitting coach, you know, because the better the player, the harder it is to pick out an issue. Like, you know, I had each role for three years. And the guy was the most meticulous guy I've ever had. And and it might be such a small little item. And and Sammy was in that. You know, the better their swings get, the more repetitive they get, the better feel they have for their swing. You're not inventing the wheel. You know, it, it's to me, it's kind of like pro golf coaches when they go to tournaments and work with their players. They're not working on their swing, they're working on their alignment, their rhythm, their direction. And, and when you're a big league hitting coach and you're in the middle of the year, you're, you're not making major adjustments. But, you know, it, it's, it's simple. It's easy, but it's it's hard to detect. You know, when I was with L.A., I had Garcia Parra, Jeff Kent, and for call. I mean, these are major veterans, and you could you'd be surprised how little adjustments they made in order to get it back. When Sammy wasn't going well, what was going on typically? Sammy's problems were, you know, his basic rhythm. You know, I was I was always a hands first kind of guy, like second. And what Sammy really learned that I, I really liked, and he, and you know, as you progress, you know, I think I was with Sammy five full years. Um, you know, he gets it. He he knows his swing. He gets better feel for it. Um, so now you're not so concerned about your mechanics or your technique. That was my job. Uh, so he could forget that, but he, he, he would come to you and, and, you know, say, you know, I, I feel like I'm not quite on time or I'm a little bit behind or, 
Um, I want to hit the ball. You know, Sammy, once he learned to go to the opposite field, he loved it. And there were times he, in my opinion, he would do it too much. And those were probably the biggest arguments we got into. I would say, Sammy, you have to spend some time on pulling the baseball. Because if you if, if you get into inside out in the ball where the bat head kind of drags behind your hands, that's one way of going the other way. That's that's not a good way to do it. And and if you if you do too much of that, that's what happens. So you you have to learn how to pull the ball without opening up your uh, your front side. And and the guy that probably learned that better than anybody that I was around, and I had him for one year, was Ryan Sandberg. That's interesting because you know Rhino was well past it at that point, but still was able to compete at the bare minimum, right? Well, when he retired, he still could have played a couple more years. That's what I thought. He he hadn't really slowed down at all. I, you know, the Cubs being with the Cubs that many years and not winning it—that's got to eat at you a little bit. And I I think the players. The bottom line is, they love the game. They want to make their money. They want to take care of their family. But to a man, I don't think I ever talked to a player that didn't want to win, you know, or get involved in playoffs. You know, when I was a Cub, I went through three managers. And and the reason I stayed on, it was probably because Sammy wanted me to stay there. So basically Sammy took care of me too. That's interesting because I was literally about five minutes ago, I was going to ask you, like, how did you, I don't know if battle is the right word, but, have the respect of the other guys when maybe you could be viewed as quote unquote Sammy's guy who and Sammy wasn't always the most popular teammate in that room. No, and Sammy and I would talk about it. You know, because Sammy would have an entourage, he would have his people taking care of business for him and you know, players didn't like that. He plays music too loud in the in the locker room sometimes and but Sammy was a humble guy, and, you know, if I presented something to him, he, he usually reacted to it. But, you know, the main reason, I says, you know, if you're going to make the money you're making, you better live up to it. And the one thing he always did, which I uh, respected him for, he wanted to play every game. I mean, when I was there with him, I don't think he was ever hurt. He might have been, but... I don't remember him missing a lot. Do you remember the corked bat game? I wasn't there then. You were oh real okay, was that oh three? I used to check his bats all the time. You know, every manufacturer was sending him dozens and dozens of bats. He had more bats than any human being I ever saw. And uh I would look at him and there you know I know how to cork bats. I know all about that. You know, because when I played, we used to cork bats. I didn't personally, but I can say that nobody really knows. But I wasn't good enough to cork a bat because it was hard to do. You know, because you had to you had to route out the bat and then you had to put the cover back on and and 
it is incredibly hard to put the top back on without leaving, you know, uh, a ring around it. So, I, I'm, you know, I'm not some um, how much difference that really makes. I'm sure it does because I think they put Super Balls in there. So you were just, you know, maybe, I don't know if you were suspicious, but you were just making sure that things were above board. Well, I didn't, you know, you know, when people start doing something that's out of the ordinary, the first thing they're going to do is is blame it on something. You know, I can't, you know, it can't be just a player. He has to be cheating in some, some way or some form. And, you know, I had players that took whatever that got worse. You know, it wasn't a guarantee that if you were on steroids or whatever that you were going to get better. There were a lot of guys who got worse. Obviously, during that era, I thought there was, you know, I mean, Conseco was an animal. Um there were a lot of guys that obviously that admitted to taking steroids that it probably it did help them. But I think from what I heard when players would talk about that era was it kept you stronger. Because if you ever play baseball, the one thing that you realize that when you play that many games in a row, you wear down. If you had a Hall of Fame vote, you you voting for Sammy? Oh, of course. So there's guys in the Hall of Fame that were users of steroids, and I'm not saying Sammy did. I'm not, obviously he was accused, but you know that's none of my business as far as that's concerned. But all I know is, from a technical standpoint, he wasn't close. And once he once he realized, took responsibility for his own swing and his ability to compete. I mean. One of the best games he ever had was against Trevor Hoffman, and nobody could hit that guy in those days. And he single-handedly beat him. So, you know, you can call it maturity, you can call it whatever you want, but once Sammy learned how how to use his legs for power and how to stay a little more grounded, meaning staying, you know, down into the earth a little longer, I mean, his power was prodigious. It wasn't like McGuire's, but it was pretty close. I mean, he was hitting home runs in Kauffman Stadium. They were hitting into the scoreboard above that monolith they have. So, but I think it was, you know, for me, my business was to, to improve people, try to max them out, try to get them to the, the level of ability that that, uh, that scouts, front office, whatever. I mean, we'd have tons of meetings trying to predict how far a player could go or what his worth was. Uh, that stuff was constantly done. And I think today it's even even more so. But that's the hardest thing for me in, in any sport is to project players to where they're going to end up. But in Sammy's case, this guy wanted it bad. And 
the spring training he had that year was off the charts. I think he hit like 12 homers, hit over 400. They were throwing at him in spring training, <laughs> which is pretty rare, right? You talking 98? Yes. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I didn't, I didn't remember that at all, but he's getting thrown at in spring training. Oh, we got in a big battle with somebody. I think it might have been San Francisco. I'm not sure, but uh, Sammy hit a line drive off the pit. He was a rookie pitcher. And he just smoked him and broke his leg. So I think they threw at our next three hitters. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but he, they thought he did it on purpose because I think they'd thrown it more, more knee the, the inning before. But, you know, some of that stuff's crazy, right? Well, it's not softball. I don't think it's that easy to shoot a shot right at someone's leg. I, I mean, no, I mean, yeah, when the ball's traveling in the 90s. And, you know, and that's the other thing is the gun today is about three or four miles an hour faster than it was back in those days. So when Kerry Woods throwing 97, 98, that's actually into the hundreds. How would you describe Sammy's relationships with his teammates, Jeff? I think it got better. I mean, Sammy was making good money with the Cubs. Obviously, I think Chicago was looking for heroes, superstars. And, you know, the, the minor league system was, at that, at that point, was well below average. We didn't have any young players down there. I actually, when I got hired... The following uh, fall, I went to, to, to look at some of their um, instructional league and fall league, whatever, and we we just didn't have any players. So the only way we were going to create players was to develop what we had in the big leagues. And uh, Sammy was obviously the number one prospect that we had. But he was, you know by most people's standards, was underproducing. So I had him way up there. In fact, you know, we had a conversation with with the manager and the general manager, and they were thinking, you know, that Sammy may have, you know, topped out. And I said, no way. This this guy is a perennial all-star. If we could get him to be a little... You know, recognize, you know, keep the ball in the strike zone, recognize pitches better, and, 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 you know, work on some intangibles. And and if we can get him going, will he, will he take over and respond to it? Which he did. So I there were a couple other years he could have been MVP and wasn't. They got to have a reconciliation, right, Sosa and the Cubs? Yeah, I don't quite understand that. I mean, the most important part or party in that is the owner. Uh, I don't know why he's so anti-Sammy Sosa, but, uh, you know, he owns the team, so he can do whatever he wants. (laughs) Because at the time when Sammy was going good, the city of Chicago loved him. Worship. I mean, they had billboards all over town. They had, you know, uh, you know, murals of him. And I remember going into restaurants and, and 
guys, well, there's Sammy's hitting, and they would stand up and give me a standing ovation. <laughs> but that that's how good a sports town Chicago was. So, so wait a second. The the hitting coach for the Cubs would go out to dinner and would walk in, and and when Sammy was going well, you would get a standing ovation? They would stand up and give me a standing ovation. That's amazing. That's awesome. Do you well, remember? that's that's how that's how I think important that time was between uh, Mac and, and Sammy because we we go to take batting practice. There'd be thirty five thousand people to watch Sammy take batting practice, and I I had a routine with Sammy in batting practice. In the first round, he had hit skimmers. You know, it's just one of my pet peeves, you know. So I wanted to hit the ball down, hit the ball sharp. I call them skimmers, like you're skimming a rock across the lake, right? Yep, got it. And and that does a lot of things to get you going instead of just swinging for the fences. But the people would boo. And then, you know, after that, I said, Sammy, you can do whatever you want, you know, and and – it was fun. So when when we played St. Louis, it, it was just a great venue because we were there when Mac basically broke the record. Yep, off we track played two games set against St. Louis. I remember batting practice at Wrigley against the Cardinals, and McGuire. It wasn't human. The ball was no. He wasn't. You're right. <laughs> I mean, the ball was so high up over the bleachers, crossing it and going across the street. I'm like, oh my god! It, you know, it was it was ridiculous. And Sammy obviously had, as you called it, prodigious power without question. But McGuire was on another level as far as just being able to take. Oh, the ball nobody, up. nobody hit him any farther than him. But Sammy hit some balls like most people don't realize. They talk about the ball the Pulholtz hit against the Astros. It went up on the railroad tracks. Sammy hit one through the top of the lights in Houston. This is during a game. And he basically hit it over the light tower in left field. He hit one in the 0-3 playoffs against, uh, I guess it was the Marlins. I think it was the Marlins. Uh, right to the left of the camera well in center field. I mean, it was a I – mean, and he would hit it down the he hit it down the street on on Kenmore. <laughs> no, I saw him hit one where you could see the ball rolling, and I'm in the dugout. I guess the biggest bomb though was Glen Allen Hill when he put it on the roof. I was there for that, and Glen Allen was a good man. He was he was a fun guy, a great motivator. He was part. Of, I think he was on that '98 club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Henry hit. 30-some homers that year. Henry was awesome that year. Yeah. yeah. So, he was fun to work with. It was a good club because, uh, you know, they were close. And, you know, uh, we ended up uh, tying with San Francisco. And then uh, we won the flip for the playoffs. And it was a big deal. Uh, we ended up winning. I think uh, Gary Gaetti had a three-run homer. The kind of yeah, two-run bomb. 
Yeah. Rod Beck closing it out. Yeah, I, I think he was so worn out. I think he was throwing about 80 miles an hour. You know, he had like 50-some saves, I think. You know what I remember about that team, and we can we can wrap up here, Jeff, and I really, really appreciate the time. It's been a great conversation. I was, you know, as I mentioned, that was the first year that I had a season credential, so I'm covering the team, at least on the home side. And after games, not that long, like the media is still in there, Grace is getting, a, you know, a, like a 7-Eleven, 64-ounce, you know, beer at his locker, and same thing with Blouser and Matt Karchner and Rod Beck. And these guys were, you know, it was like a bar in there after the game. They're smoking, they're drinking, all of yeah, it. Terry Mahal. Yeah, right. You know, and this is, you know, it was normal. The, the fridge was filled with Budweiser, Bud Light, whatever. You don't see that now, right? I mean, I haven't seen that for a long time. But back then, that, that was the deal. Dudes would just hang out after the game. I mean... That changed a whole lot over the course of your career, I would think. Well, I think when the when the kid died in you know the St. Louis, where he was had been drinking in the clubhouse and ended up getting a traffic, that changed a lot of things. Yeah, uh, you know, beer's still available in most of the clubhouses. I don't think the players partake that much. Uh, you know, sometimes managers would want us as coaches to stay around uh, until the players were gone, and then we might have meetings. Uh, so, you know, uh, it wasn't very often that coaches jumped on the first bus or left early you know, at a home club. You know, I mean, obviously, the biggest key to a coaching staff for me was always the manager. I mean, when I worked with Joe Torrey in L.A., I mean, this guy was special. And Girardi was a save. Riggleman was one of the best I ever worked for. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that coaches and managers are nearly as important as they used to be, you know, just because of, you know, the system that we're using nowadays. But... I remember wanting in the worst way to work with uh, Bruce Bochy because I thought he was outstanding. So when you're a, a coach, and, you know, obviously we all have different responsibilities, but the manager was, I always thought, was the biggest key going forward because it allowed you uh, either the freedom that to – do whatever you thought was necessary to the players or whether you had some restrictions. And, uh, um, you know, he was a man. So whatever you wanted to be, you know, you you got on the train. I remember one year we had a couple of rookie coaches. I was with Seattle, and uh, we started not playing really well, and, and the two young coaches came up to me and goes, what do we do, Jeff? And I says, we go down with a ship. That's what we do. <laughs> you know, you do your job and do whatever you can. And I said, well, I'm having a pretty good year doing what I'm doing. I said, it don't matter. When we all go, uh, you know, if the manager gets fired, we all go. So hang with them. Yep. You, that's your job. You got to, you know, you uplift him, you get to ride the wave, and if he sinks, you're going down too. 
So most times, at least, unless you have a rare circumstance like yourself and Sammy that you, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I was lucky in that respect because Chicago was such a great place and I enjoyed it. I, I wish we'd have been a little more competitive over the years, but I don't know. I think the Tribune owned the, the club back then, and uh, I just don't know how serious you know, or important the Cubs were, but uh, the fans sure loved it. That underlines what has always been true in sports. If you look in an organization that never wins, it's not about the GM. It's not about the manager. you got to go to the top of the food chain. And, you know, the Tribune's legacy along those lines as far as wanting to win or not wanting to win uh, was incredibly clear. You don't let a guy, you don't let the Cy Young Award winner get go to Atlanta over a couple of million bucks. I'm sorry. That just, that never happens. No, I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, GMs are sometimes their hands are tied. I mean, you never know, but I mean, uh, but, you know, all the teams I ever spent with, uh, Chicago was by far uh, the best city, the best fans. And it was it was just incredibly fun. We didn't even I don't feel like we covered all the ground here, but we did this for an hour. So let, let me let you get on out. Oh, of here. So, you know, I guess we could have been a little more specific with Sammy. But <laughs> remember one thing about Sammy: this guy was incredibly talented. He was a gifted player. You know, you can count the number of those guys on one hand, and you know he came from nothing and became something and I always had a, a, a great amount of respect for him and Mark Grace but uh, Sammy was truly a superstar those two didn't like each other too much or at least Grace did no but I used to kid with them all the time because um, uh, they see they didn't they respected each other but they had their differences you're right and uh uh, we had some really fun in games with that, you know, because uh, I would get in the middle of it, and next thing you know, they're barking at each other, and you know, I, I you know, I probably shouldn't have done it, but uh, it was kind of fun. Was I always felt it was more Mark going at Sammy than Sammy going at Mark, but maybe I'm misreading it. Yeah, Mark was a big talker. Mark, Mark had you know, ever nobody disliked Mark. How can you like, dislike Mark Grace? Uh, friendly as they come was basically Mr. Cub for a long time. Um, I, I really enjoyed him. And I've always said, if there was a man on second base with two outs, who would I want it to play? You know, and I was what parts of 17 years in the big leagues. It would be Mark Grace. That's a hell of a compliment right there. Well, he was awesome. I mean, and he was very coachable. There were times when I would approach him and, and, you know, I said, you need to drive the ball here. You need to, you know, you need to turn on the ball, whatever. And you know what? He did it. I mean, if you challenge Mark, he met it easily. And, but, you know, he didn't hit 25, 30 home runs a year, so, you know, Sammy could, Mark couldn't, but Mark was an elevator. Led the 90s in hits. It's, it's like, 
No, that was a big thing. We talked about that earlier in the year. And he came to me and he says, you know what, I'm 10 doubles and so many hits behind with Palmero and, and Biggio. I want to be the hitter of the decade. What do I do? And we actually came up with a game plan from about the middle of the year to the end of the year. And you know what? He did it. And he did it easy. What he was the plan? He, he be, well, you know, you know, I – we went through basically uh, years and years of his experience. And I said, Mark, from what I've seen in the years I've been with you, they try to get you out inside and your game plan is to use more of the middle of the field. Why don't we do this? Cause you want to win the doubles too. I said, why don't you think about pulling the ball early? And if you get behind in the strike zone, just go back to the way you normally hit. So, but instead of, you know, try to do a little more damage early in the count and go back to your normal style when you, when you got two strikes or you get behind in the count and that's not a big plan, is it? <laughs> well, that's a sense. And you know what he did? He, he started yanking them down the right field line. You know, you get that well, it ain't going to be a single. Nope. Trot right in. And that's what he did. He he started, you know, because every pitcher threw him in, you know, especially when I got, you know, when they wanted to get him out, they, they threw him in. And, and I told Mark, you know, I've just looked in and, and try and turn on some balls early in the count. And then when you get behind, just be your own side, whatever, you know, and, uh, if it did anything, it kind of confused the pitchers because they were used to seeing a different mark race. So he, you know, obviously when you coach in the big leagues, you're not telling anybody anything. You're suggesting that they do this. And if they respect you or it makes sense to them, they'll put it in their game. Well, I'm looking forward to watching the documentary. Do they interview you for it? ESPN called me a year ago and asked me if I'd be interested, and I, I, I said, "Nah, it's not about me. It's about the players." You turned it down, really? Wow. Okay, I would have loved to have seen you quoted in there. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I had chances to play in the big leagues, had a couple opportunities. They made some trades. They sent me back to AAA. Blah blah this and that, whatever. But, um. Uh, so I always my my feeling was that respect belongs to the players, not to the coaches. Fair enough. Even though you were getting standing ovations walking in and having dinner. Well, that was that part was kind of fun <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I mean they got into it when Sammy hit those twenty homers in June. It was unbelievable how that town turned into. I, other than Michael Jordan, I think he was he was the man. That's my thing with Cub fans who are like, yeah, screw Sammy. I'm like, screw Sammy? D did you attend a Cubs game in 98 through whatever? I mean, the Sammy chants were a ton of fun. It was, it was electric. Oh, I loved it. I saw him uh, up in Detroit in June. I think that's when he had his 20th was maybe in, I think it was at Old Tiger Stadium. That sounds Detroit. right. Yeah. Well, he had 90. 
I think he hit 19 at Detroit, which broke the record. Okay. And he came back home the last day. Okay. And hit one. Because I, I forget, I guess Milwaukee, I think Milwaukee hit like 12 overs against them. I, I, I give Phil Gardner a lot of credit because they were in last place, yet they didn't pitch around him. Yeah, that Sunday when he hit 61 and 62 was crazy. Well, I was a story to that. Uh, he had gone to McGuire and, and hit, what, 61 or whatever it was. I think Sammy was four behind him, and Milwaukee was coming into town, and I noticed that they weren't going to play McGuire that weekend. So Sammy's kind of sitting in his locker, and he's kind of got his head down. I went over, he goes, I don't want to hear anything from you. Just Sammy's talking to me. I said, Sammy, the guy ain't going to play this weekend. You're playing against Milwaukee. You kill him. I said, you're going to catch him. And he hit, hit, I think he hit four, so there were 62-62, game back on. The people went nuts. <laughs> they did. Never seen anything like it. That was a highlight. Yep. Move over, Big Mac. You've got company. It was a phenomenal call by Chip Carey. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. I mean, but Milwaukee, they didn't have the best pitching staff in the world, but they weren't, you know, they weren't horrible. And Gardner was great. He says, you know, pitch to him. Because, you know, they could have walked him just as easy, you know. But I told Sammy at the end of the year, we were playing Houston, who had the best team in in the division. And Mac was going in to play Montreal, which brought up all the AAA guys to pitch against him. And I think he hit five home runs that weekend. And I told Sammy, I guess you ain't ain't winning the home run contest. (laughs) Because we're, we're, we're finishing up with Houston and Max getting Montreal. He played great in that series, though. And you guys got, I think you only won one of the games, but you had to have at least one. And then Nephi Perez hit a bomb to save you. Yeah, you got it. We were walking up the stairs, figured we'd lost it. And uh, so, no, Sammy had a great series. It's just uh, that Astrodome, that's when we played in the Astrodome. Yeah. We play no doubles, and I, uh, and you know, I just hate that defensive alignment. No doubles as you play your outfielders all the way back to the fence, right? To keep the runners from going to second base, and I'll be darn. I always think that more blue pits fall in than ever balls are hit out of the ballpark. And when you play on that turf, you, you can't charge the ball. You have to sit back because it bounces so high. Yep. And we lost two games on no doubles. And then I think Terry Mahalan, who could not throw to first base, threw the ball down the right field line. But we don't get to where we were without Terry Mahalan. He was an old-school workhorse he was awesome. He was one of my favorite. You know, him and Rod Beck. And Tapney had a really good year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we gave Atlanta a run, even though we lost three games in a row. Well, you had game 2-1. Uh, you got screwed on a call down at second base. I think more than Dean. Oh, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, when I was in the bottom of the ninth when uh, – 
whatever it was, the catcher, hit a home run with two outs in the ninth, I think. Avi Lopez. Avi Lopez, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And then we were killing Maddox in the last game. And the wind was blowing in and kind of – we didn't quite catch enough of him. But we, we had him on the ropes a couple times. Yeah, and For some him. reason, Greg didn't throw as well in playoff games. Well, they got him. They got him in '03, um, but that was that was five years later. Jeff Pentland, great to be with you, my friend. Well, what a pleasure! You you did a hell of a job. Uh, uh, you know, hopefully, I didn't talk too much. As promised, his triumphant return to the Windy City podcast. Ethan Blumenthal, you have been missed. I've got a special story for you. Are you excited? I first of all, I'm excited every time I get to be on the show, and of course, I'm excited for a story. Let me let I can't even start talking right now. Well, I have two topics that I want to discuss with you today off the top of my head. But number one, I was at the first softball practice of the spring bordering on summer over the weekend and at and at said practice was a gentleman who's a big listener to the windy city podcast his name is ken tarnoff he is the biggest cub fan that i know and he came up to me specifically to tell me that he loved the podcast when you crashed my wedding well that is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm shook. I'm sitting here. I'm shook. That makes me. That brings tears to my eyes. I really appreciate. It. What, what was his name again? His name is Ken Tarnoff. Would you like his phone number? Well, I don't know if I need his phone number, but sure, maybe we, we can, we can hang out. I, I was always like a good fan. You know, hopefully one day I'll have so many that I won't just want to text the ones that I do have. But you know. We'll do with what we can right now. Right. It's one fan at a time, and the fact that you actually have picked up a fan who spoke about you months after you did a show, that's high praise right there, pal. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm glowing. I'm going to sleep better tonight knowing that that's, that that's out there. That's going to make me feel really good. And the point of me bringing that up really was to tell you that I played tennis three straight days doubled up with a softball. I'm getting in shape. I'm dropping off some of the COVID. I was up to, okay. you know, I was I was tipping over 185. I've seen 181. I haven't quite broken the 180 into the 179s, and today was not ideal, but it's coming. So just know that uh, 175 was within range, and I'm planning on hitting it. Thank you very much. Where, where have you been playing tennis? Because I, I know that a lot of the, the nets are down, at least in some places. I have... Uh, hit up the northern suburbs rough and tumble ac nielsen 
and uh, Locust Park as well, if you must know. Okay, okay yeah, I do. I must. Uh, all right. And how's the game coming along? Not bad. Not bad. Okay. Not great, but not bad. Uh, certainly ready for a, a tussle with you. Is there is there going to be a U.S. Open this year? I, I know that wasn't what we were planning on talking about, but, I mean, the U.S. Open is obviously one of the, the best times of the year. I don't – I'm not optimistic on that. I certainly don't think there will be a U.S. Open that I'm going to. Which, right, that's for sure. Which brings me to my second topic. So, Ethan – you love baseball. You're fired up for Sosa McGuire. You've been to many baseball games, have you not? I have, yes. Okay, so here's my hypothesis. Baseball okay. is getting crushed, rightfully so. The owners and the players can't get together. Here are my thoughts. It is actually better for the true baseball fan for there not to be a season in 2020. Now, I think it would be incredibly sweet to have a 50-game season and every single game, it matters. It's almost like you're in the playoffs right when the season starts until you're not in the playoffs. Sort of like an NFL schedule, 50 games baseball. That's awesome. Every night you're locked in. Really cool. Could be a ton of fun. Expanded playoffs. Everyone's got a shot. I think that's awesome. But here's the other side of it. People are going to be so incredibly pissed if they don't play that what will happen is when they finally do get a deal hammered out for 2021 and, and who knows what it looks like after that with the collective bargaining agreement is really coming to an end, the fans that will come back are going to come back to cheaper tickets, more wide-open stadiums, either easier trip to the concession stand, easier trip to the bathroom, hot dog prices might go down, beer prices might go down, they're going to have to incentivize you coming back. We're not going to get to go to a game this year anyway. So actually, from a fan standpoint, since you're not going to the game, since you are probably a little bit irritated with what you're paying already, the best thing you can hope for from a long-term standpoint as a fan is to take your medicine now, no baseball 2020. We all understand, at least part of it, with the pandemic. And we live to fight another day, and we hope for a better day for the diehards. And the people that, you know, will find something else to do in their life, all right, cool. Don't need you in my ballpark. It's sweet. That's totally fine. Go do whatever you want to do. And we'll see you when you come back around, when you think baseball is cool again, because we know you'll be back too, just like you always come back, just like they did with Sosa McGuire, all of it. Baseball not playing in 2020 is best for the fans. What do you think? All right. Well, so there's a lot to unpack here. So first of all, I want to go back to your theory that things will be cheaper next year. Your theory is that things will be cheaper next year because they'll have to be MLB will have to be working hard to get the fans back into baseball, so they're going to have to incentivize fans by making the tickets cheaper, et cetera. Is that your theory? Yep. We apologize. We're really sorry we didn't play. We we watch you back. We are instituting 15% cut, uh, price cuts across the board on tickets and maybe 25% in the box seats, something like that. Okay. So have you ever been to Wrigley Field before? Many times. Yes. Yeah. So now – the Cubs have, were bad for most of my life, and I know they were bad for, obviously, most of your life. Um, and it's always fun to say, I don't know if anyone, just for those listeners who know it, who don't know at home, Carmen is like a million years older than I am. Um, but, um, but Wrigley Field is a field that I live 10 minutes from, and they're going to have people no matter what. Wouldn't you agree with that? 
I think they'll take a look right now. Cubs tickets are exceedingly overpriced. You would be an idiot if you ever went to the window and or Ticketmaster to buy a Cubs ticket. Go on StubHub. You will get it cheaper there. And even better, if you're willing to go out day of game and be on the street day of, you're going to get a great deal. Either A, on StubHub or B, from a scalper out there. It would be rare that you would ever pay face value. So the Cubs know this, even though they don't say it. And eventually, they're going to have to realize that the marketplace is telling them your seats are too expensive. There is not that much demand. There's going to have to be, at some point, a shift in what they're charging, I believe. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to disagree with you here. And I hope that we can still be friends after this. First of all, as a fan, I would really, really, really like to just be able to go right now, walk out of my room right now and go and turn on the TV and be able to watch a baseball game. I would really, really enjoy that. So I understand that that's, you know, maybe that's my long-term thinking, but, um, I, you know, I try to live in the moment and that would be really, really nice. And I think that regardless if anything, I think it could be argued that next year, regardless of any change in prices, people are going to be even hungrier for baseball because they've been starved of it for so long. A lot of angst out there, Ethan Blumenthal. A lot of people really pissed. A lot of people saying the hell with you, baseball. That's only going to grow louder if they don't play. Well, um, I'm bad that they're not that they that the NBA just signed a deal, right? The NBA signed a deal, right? NBA's right. NBA ready to rock and roll. ESPN. NHL. Yep. NHL ready to rock right, and roll. Right, right. NHL's going to figure it out too. Baseballs just can't get it together. I think. By the way, I think baseball will get it together. I think it will happen. But I'm just telling you long term, for the diehard, you're not. You, do you you telling me that you really enjoy sitting at home watching baseball? I mean, let's. I want an honest. Ethan Blumenthal strapped up to the lie detector test. How much of a baseball game, as a baseball fan, at home, can you sit and just watch without getting on Twitter or anything else to entertain yourself because it's moving at a snail's pace? Okay, first of all, first of all, again, every time you come in, there's a lot to unpack. Anytime anyone does anything, they're on Twitter and Instagram and et cetera, because America and the world has gotten really dumb. And so we can't really look at anything for more than a minute without having to look at our phone and scroll through Twitter to look at some dumb things. Are we, can we agree on that? Yes, but baseball or not, but, but, football, basketball, whatever you're watching, you're, you're, they're looking, you're scrolling, but, you're looking at your phone. I think if you took a picture of everyone watching any sporting event, I think that there's a lot of times during the games when people are looking at their phones. That's a fair point, but I think you come back quicker to the action if you're watching a football and or basketball game. Baseball, you literally can get lost for an hour, and then you pick it up, and it's in the sixth inning, and nothing's happened. Okay. So, I just, I mean, now it's like you want to fight me right now, and that's okay, because I would never fight you, because, you know, I have nothing but love. But, you know, first of all, I will watch, if I could, I would be happy to sit and watch 162 Cubs games at home a year. Now it's unrealistic. 162, the big number. I can't. I I can't count that high. But uh, it's. I would watch that many Cubs games, especially if they're good. If they weren't any good or didn't have a chance at the playoffs, then at some point I I would probably get a little bit bored. 
And, but I, I would genuinely do that. And when I'm at home and, you know, I get to work from home, regardless pandemic or not, you know, if there's a, a game at 120, I like to, you know, set up my computer and I can do a little work and I can watch the game. And, you know, it's a, it's a perfect afternoon. All right. This is where the fight starts. And wait, and actually, wait, let me, let me jump in one more thing. Let me, let me say one more thing. And this is what I genuinely believe, which is that I genuinely believe that football is a way slower game than baseball. Every football play, every single play, there's a flag. You don't even know what, you know, you, there's a play happens, and then you can't even celebrate. You can't get excited for your team because there's a flag. There's something that happened on the backfield, and you didn't even see it, and then the refs have to talk about it, and you don't know what's going to happen. And, and then when there's not a flag, there's an injury, and then they got to go to a commercial timeout because they got to take this guy off the field, or he's slow to get up. they got to take a short timeout. The game takes forever, and then in, 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 you know, in college, they, they review pretty much every single play. So every play adds, adds an extra 45 seconds that you're waiting because they're reviewing the play, and then the reviews that take longer, you know, another two, three, four, five minutes that you're sitting there waiting for it. Baseball, yes, you know, in some ways you could say there's not as much action, but there's a steady pace of action, and it doesn't get held up every 30 seconds like it does in football. So I would much rather watch a baseball game in general than a football game because football takes forever, and I like watching both. But I, you know, people will will think I'm crazy for saying it, but football is by far slower game to me than baseball. Which is why, for the record, that the NBA and or college basketball, if you have a rooting interest, is the greatest because an NBA game starts at seven fifteen, nine fifteen, nine thirty, the latest. It's over. College basketball, two hours done. Baseball, you're lucky to get done in three. Football, three and a half. College football, might as well take all day. That being said, I think I've learned something about you today, Ethan. You're a baseball yeah. guy. You is is baseball your number one sport? Yeah, I would say it would, right. it would have to be. Okay, it would have to be. And listen, I listen. I'm a sports guy. You know, no, I, no, no, I, no. I love to go to the Blackhawks game. I love to go watch. You know, I don't really care uh, too much about the NBA, but I'd be happy to watch a college game all day, every day. I mean, you know, I love Northwestern sports. I mean, I'll go to every Northwestern football game, every Northwestern basketball game, no question that. Yeah, but would but, you, but, um, but Northwestern yeah. basketball is 7,000 times better than Northwestern football just for the sheer amount of time. The football team's way better, but the basketball game is uh, you're not cold and it lasts two hours. And you have a right. night. It's, 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 just you, it's a built-in, you know exactly what you're signing up for experience. No. You go That's to, 100% true, 100% true. So the, the thing that drives me insane all the time about all everything except for college basketball is when you go turn on the TV, right? And it says on ESPN, right? It says, you know, uh, if it's a football game and it's, you know, uh, Northwestern versus whoever, right? And then it'll give a time slot for three hours. And we both know it'll say from one to four is the time slot. But we both know that at 430, the game's still going to be on. Whereas if you're watching a college basketball game and it says 6 to 8 p.m. on the TV, it's probably going to be over at just about 8 p.m. And right. that is huge. And the same with baseball and the same with football. They give it three-hour slots, and we all know it's going to take longer than that. So, right. So you're – okay. I, I, I got it. I've learned a lot. I respect – I love college basketball, by the way. And the fact that I – the fact that, you know, my whole – I was looking forward to March Madness. It's every year. It's the greatest. And, again, you know, I work from home so that Thursday and Friday. I mean, I might as well just, you know, phone it in. I just sit there. I got different screens. That's, those are the two of the best days of the year. No, uh, undoubtedly. But the first couple, yeah. Sorry. No, I got you. I got you. You got me heated. You got me heated. No, it's good. It's good, Ethan. I I appreciate your passion. Let let me just let me wrap up with this and make the point very well clear to you. If baseball doesn't play this year, will you be back? 
Of course. Of course you will. Right. So this is a separate point. But the point is, is that people are saying that, well, if baseball doesn't play, it's going to drive off the cliff and it'll kill the game and you can't do it. And 94, they did that. And the game took till 98 to come back. Hold on a second. How old were you in 1995, Mr. Cub fan? Uh, I think I was uh, four, if my math. Okay, so then you don't remember that the Cubs went 71 and 73 and were still alive on the second to the last day of the season. I do. Now, I was 22. The point being is that I watched baseball in 95, and they didn't even start the season on time. You know what I watched again in 96? You know who else watched? A lot of people. You know who watched in 97? A bunch of people, too. And then Sosa McGuire happened, and the game zoomed back to popularity. Great. Doesn't matter to me. I, I Look, I work at WGN. We go out to – I go to a zillion White Sox games a summer. Realistic totals, they call it 30 games, maybe a little bit more than that, whatever. It's not sold out, right? Most nights, 90% right. of them. Do I, do I have a less of an experience because there's not as many people in the stands? The answer is no. I enjoy the game. So baseball's not going anywhere. Baseball's going to be around for all of our lifetimes, all our kids' lifetimes, all our kids' kids' lifetimes. It's all okay. Little League's going on. People love the game. They love hot dogs. They love beer. They love apple pie. We're not. Baseball's not going away. They should play. They should figure it out. It'd be to baseball, the players and the owners' benefits. But as far as us fans, I do think long-term we're actually better off if they don't play. Do you get my point? I know you disagree because I, you want to see it, but do you get my point at all? I, I, yeah, I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying, but I, I do. Yeah, I think I, I hear what you're saying, but I disagree. But I'm also I, – I know when I'm coming from, from, a, from a biased position, and I'm biased because I don't really care what the hell you're saying. I just want to go and watch a baseball game. I got it. I got it. You're a baseball guy. Yeah. You were how old in 2003? Uh, old enough. Old enough that it's that it, that's I think about it when I wake up and and when I go to bed every night. Okay. Um, give me. But I was uh, twelve. I think I was twelve. Give me the Cubs lineup just so we can I can verify this baseball love. The Cubs lineup in two thousand three. Yep. Oh baby, um, this is a fun exercise. So two thousand three, that was the year in the middle of the year, right? That was when they got uh, Aramis Ramirez and uh, Kenny Lofton. Is that correct? You are correct. I think so. They, so add, they, Lawson, add, they, yeah. they added another left-handed hitting first baseman who walloped one of the Brewers' sausage races people. Do you remember that? Of course. Randall Simon. There we go. Okay. Okay. Uh, but he, was, he, he, was, he didn't start at first, though. Well, he split, um, he split time with? That wasn't Hesop Choi, was it? No. That was not Hesop Choi. You are your baseball. Uh, Eric. Lo- Eric. Eric Carroll. Eric Carroll is correct. Who was the second yeah, baseman? Um, well, I know that it was not Mickey Morandini because that's older than that. Um, Ninety-eight Morandini traded for Doug Glanville. Right. Um, second base for the Cubs. He came, he came over from the Dodgers in the Eric Caros trade for a dysfunctional catcher who I believe, I'm not 100% certain, but seemed to have a little problem with the alcohol. Great trade by 
one of the better trades by Jim Hendry, even though it was a kind of a one-year wonder deal. Um, he had a very man, funky uh, last. Oh, oh, Mark DeRosa? No. Mark DeRosa is no, close no. in the fact that his first name is Mark, but DeRosa was on the 07 08 Cubby. Right, right, right. Yeah, that was too late. That'll be Mark. Um, he, he, it starts with a grud and ends with Zalonic. Oh, Mark Rizalonic. Very good, obviously. very good, very good. Um, thanks. So, and I could have done it without both those hands. <laughs> um, we had um, at short was, um, oh, short obviously was Alex Gonzalez, which, by the way, this is the biggest pet peeve of mine in the history of all of my pet peeves in terms of baseball, is going back to 03, people say, everyone says, oh, Alex Gonzalez booted a, a routine double play. Um, Taylor made a double play, and if you go back and watch, it was clearly not a routine double play. They were going to be lucky to get one out at second. I'm not mm-hmm. saying he shouldn't have made the play, but everyone says that, and they have everyone, and they just completely misremember it because I've actually rewatched it a million times. And the announcer even says that all he, he was just trying to get one there because there was no way he could get the out at first because that was a a you know 22 year old Miguel Cabrera running down there, not the you know 75 year old one that runs down to first base anyways. Anyways, you, so Gonzalez was that short. You make an okay point. He definitely was getting one. Perhaps would not have well, gotten well, two. One no, no, was he, the, one was a lot. He, he was getting the no, he, he was he was getting the I'm out of second. You, Carm, you watch this watch it and it is close. He's it's a slow ball, a high chopper to his right and oh, he's got to make a good quick play and I'm not saying he should get an out. A major league shortstop should get that out. But, and yes, he should have gotten the out of second, but there's 100%, 0% chance that anyone in the history of baseball could turn that double play. I'm just watching the tape. Watch the tape. I, I, I don't need to watch that tape again. He should have gotten one. A thousand times. times out of a thousand, he should have gotten one. And and I think, I don't know. I this this The relay, okay, that's, that's, that's debatable. But they at least should have gotten one. And the guy who should be blamed on that team is Alex Gonzalez and not the bozo fan down the left field line whose name I'll just leave off of here. But so, okay, uh, who's your third baseman? You already mentioned Aramis. Who's your left fielder? Um, uh, left fielder. Um, and I'm just going to throw out a name because I just want to maybe get some credit. I'm pretty sure it's wrong, but Jeremy Burnett, but I think that was before. <laughs> So your diehard, your love of the game is strong, but your diehard cubness has been completely thwarted and bamboozled. And we're going to have to, and I actually now think you're a White Sox fan, um, which is totally fine. You You were on the Brewers and then you played on the Cubs. Yeah, but come on, man. Moise Salou was leaping into the stands oh. and screaming at Steve Bartman. Yeah, obviously. Okay, I, that was, you know, I just had a, that was brain fart. So we got, obviously, Lofton Center, uh, I'm, right. This, you got, I got to get your brother, Daniel Blumenthal, on here to just to talk about whether or not this is uh, your, your, what you're, you're allowed even to be a sports fan at this point. Your whole, okay. So, Moise listen, you can, you can, you can rag on me for the Moise Salou that, that, that was, inexcusable obviously i wasn't thinking and um who, who was it right. i'm putting you on the spot here who I'll, I'll grant you that who was in center yeah. well and who got who who did he replace who got hurt in the middle of the season you were young but i still think you should know this stuff who did he replace in the middle of the season he, he, he was a stud young center fielder at least he was billed as that by the cubs he was gonna oh, be Corey Patterson. there we go very good and who was in right yeah. That's right, my main man. How many homers did he have that year? I think it was forty. I'd have to double check that. Don't re- take away that question. Catchers, 
Um, catcher uh, was definitely serviceable. Um, catcher, catcher, catcher. Incredibly serviceable. I'm giving you a hint, Terry. Well, I, I think that that incredibly serviceable. Yes. Scott. Service. Scott um, Service. I. Uh, this, was, was Henry was Henry Blanco? Was he possible that Blanco was the backup catcher? Blanco was not on that team. I believe Blanco was in 07, 08 or but if the the other the backup catcher was a left-handed hitting. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fine fellow slash slob who made the final out in game seven, a weak fly ball to left. The one and only, I'll answer this one for you, Paul Bacco. Ooh, Paul Bacco. Uh, Paul. You know, I wasn't going to get that, but certainly the name rings a bell. Right. I can, I can yeah, no, I, I knew you were out on Bacco. Uh, yeah. who, who do you remember from the rotation? Uh, well, there was a fellow by the name of Mark Pryor. Correct. And, um, you know, people forget that when Mark Pryor was coming up, he was as highly touted as, like, the Steven Strasburgs and the Bryce Harpers as, like, the, you know, whatever he was picked first or second. You he know was, what I mean? He was straight God, baby. Number two overall he was pick. Second, and Maurer was first that year. Uh, wait, say again? He was picked second overall, and Joe Maurer was picked first by the Twins in that no, draft. Very, very, very good, very good. Would not have yeah. re- would not have recalled that, but I I, yeah. I trust you are correct. Yeah. Who else was in the rotation? Uh, Kerry Wood. Correct. Game three um, starter. Oh, uh, Zambrano. Yep. Game Game four should have pitched uh, one more time in that series, but didn't. Uh, was that Matt Clement? That was Matt Clement. The bullpen was the real problem on that team. They had well. They did not have uh, they did not have an Araldis Chapman back there to to, to dominate. Yeah. Uh, Dave, that probably would have helped. Dave Veers and Joe Borowski and uh, hmm. yeah, yeah. Joe Borowski had or one of those years he had a good year. But yeah, I think if you had Chapman coming out, I don't know. In game six, as soon as Pryor got into trouble, as soon as the whole you know um, Jeremy Burnett slash Moises Alou thing happened, um, you know game over. Must, uh, game, game over. Game over. If you bring in Chapman right there, you know, the Cubs are still up three one, three two, whatever it was. Yeah, yep. that would be different. We'd have to be singing a different tune right now. No question. Ethan, you're the man. Thank you. I appreciate that, and uh, <laughs> I look forward to playing some baseball, and I look forward to um, hitting some tennis balls across the court with you. Let's stay safe, and uh, yeah. yes, enjoy Sosa and McGuire. Ethan Blumenthal, he failed the O three Cubs test, but he's still a hero. He's uh. He's a legend, and he was at my wedding as he was not invited, and one of our fans, Ken Tarnoff, loves you for it. Ethan, good to be with you. Always a pleasure, Carmen. Thank you. I can hear it. That ball was hit. I can hear it. I can hear it. I still got it. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.